I must start off by saying that when it comes to seasons, I am a little bit biased. Because when it comes to season, seasons, I by far show favoritism this season of summer. Now granted, this is the favorite season for a lot of people, especially children. Maybe it's the thought of playing outside in a beautiful weather and not being behind a desk in a classroom for three months, what excites all people who are in school. I mean, after all, where do you think the song, School's Out for Summer, came from? <laughs> I'm singing in church. <laughs> and yes, for a lot of people like myself who grew up in the northeast part of the United States, it's that only time of year you don't have to shovel your sidewalk so you could get out of your house or use the card, credit card with the most amount of debt on it to scrape the ice off your windshield before you go to work. But for me growing up, the summer season was more than a particular time of the year. To me, the summer season was a time of joyful beginnings. To this day, I can recall my fond memories of the summer season with my sister as a child. A season when we would swim in our overchlorinated swimming pool until our eyes turned red. And a time of we would go to our town fair and eat all this carnival food and then rides ride rides that would test our ability to hold that food down, or times when we would go with our grandparents camping in Canada. And when I got older and began working more in the summer, I still considered summer my favorite season, even if it was a season of my father teaching me how to mow the lawn with his brand-new lawnmower, and me ended up using that brand-new lawnmower to run over gardening tools and breaking that new lawnmower or the time during my first summer job when I worked at a car wash and was driving a convertible through a car wash and forgot the top was down. <laughs> but despite all these, I still enjoyed summer. You see, our scripture today is all about seasons. And while they can refer to seasons of warm weather or cold weather, there are also seasons where we not only experience around us but seasons we experience in our very own lives. The third chapter of Ecclesiastes is often not only one of the most recognized chapters in Scripture, but it can be one of the most difficult books to understand. Now, when considering this book in the larger context of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes stands out as an unusual book in relation to the mainstream biblical tradition. That's because in Ecclesiastes, there's not much said about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, there's no real mention of the great exodus or God's special relationship with Israelites or the great promised land. And for many centuries, it was assumed that Ecclesiastes was written by the person who was speaking in the book, a person named Puleth, who claims to be the son of David. Now, while many have assumed this character was King Solomon, who ruled over Israel, biblical scholars today just don't believe this is the case. After all, if Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, why doesn't he refer to his reign in the book? And if he was the son of David, why is there no real mention of him in biblical history? Much like other questions we have about Scripture, the truth is this. We simply do not know. But what we do know is this. The author of Ecclesiastes seems to be opening up the book prior to chapter 3, having this grim, grim view of life and finding it to be pointless and meaningless. In fact... Chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes reads, Meaningless, meaningless. 
utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To take the place streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never had enough of seeing, nor its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of one what can say, look, there is something new? If it was here already long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those who will come will not be remembered by anyone. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Even though we don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes, we can be assured of this. He or she doesn't really view that glass on the table as being half full. Maybe they don't even view of that glass being on the table at all. But what does this author feel? Why does the author feel this way? What does he or she mean when they say life is meaningless and pointless? Is he naturally or being a pessimistic person? Or is the author experiencing a season in their life of great sorrow and great pain? What season is the author in when we read these first two chapters? Recently, a few classmates of mine introduced me to the animated movie called Up. If you haven't seen this movie before, it's a Pixar animated movie that stars an older man named Carl and a younger boy named Russell. Now, the first 10 minutes of the movie basically set up the backdrop for the entire movie. It opens up with us seeing Carl in the 1930s, who is this young boy himself. During this time, he meets a girl named Ellie. And falling madly in love, Carl and Ellie eventually get married and restore a house where he works as a toy toy balloon vendor and she is a zookeeper. Unable to have children, they do repeatedly pull all their savings up for a trip to Paradise Falls, this unknown place they, as adventurists, want to discover. But they always end up spending it more on pressing needs. But as we see in the first ten minutes of the movie, an elderly Carl finally arranges for this trip they have been waiting on for all their lives. But Ellie suddenly becomes ill and dies, leaving him alone. It's probably one of the most depressing beginnings of a Disney movie, and one of those things that will make you cry, even if you are a 29-year-old man watching a Disney movie. But after we see this backstory, the movie itself begins in present day. Carl is still living in this house, now surrounded by urban development. He has refused to sell the house to developers, and he injures a construction worker when they damage his mailbox, and a court orders him to move to a retirement home. However, Carl comes up with this scheme to keep his promise to Ellie. He turns his house into this makeshift airship using thousands of healing balloons to lift it up off its foundation. But right before it takes off, a young wilderness explorer, a fictional scouting organization, this this young boy becomes an accidental passenger in his effort to earn his final merit badge of assisting someone who is utterly. As the movie begins to take place, Carl is much like the author of Ecclesiastes in the first two chapters. He seems grumpy, he seems miserable, and all he does is complain to Russell, this overly eager young boy who wants to go on an adventure and earn his merit badge for helping Carl. While the Carl's character of this grumpy character provides much laughs in the movie as he is stuck with young Russell and later on a talking dog, 
there's a sense of sadness we see in Carl's character. Sadness for a man who, while maybe grumpy and stuck in a flying house with a wilderness explorer, but also sad that he is in a difficult season of his life. A season where Ellie, this woman who he adored and loved since he was young, is now gone. And now they're living in a world where he feels so out of place, so out of touch, and so out alone. When watching this movie, it's only natural to have empathy for Carl, but it's also natural for us to sometimes see ourselves like this Carl character in the movie. And that's because we too experience seasons where we find ourselves having changes in our lives and wrestling with feelings, with loneliness, heartache, and trying to discover, discover new changes that we are facing. That for us, they can be seasons where we're mourning the loss of loved ones, grieving the ends of relationships, losing or changing a job which we had for many years, seeing changes in our health, experiencing difficulties in our finances, or just witnessing the pain we see in the world. All these seasons cause us to pause, lament, and reflect. Yesterday, I, along with many of my classmates, graduated from San Francisco Theological Seminary as we earned our Master's in Divinity degrees. And while yesterday and this weekend has been a time of celebration for us as we are done with tests, papers, and professors, I say professors lightly because I know there's many professors that go to this church, it's also a season of change for us. For now, not only are we ending a four-year relationship we had with each other, being close in each other's lives, but all of us who have experienced this part of our lives together are now going in separate directions. And we are entering a field of work that has a lot of uncertainties and working in a church that it seems to be growing smaller and opportunities finding full-time ministry jobs are even harder. Above all, the transition from being a place which not only has been our community, but also been our home, and trying to redefine ourselves, who we are, in a new place is a daunting task for all of us. So for us, in a way, it's been a season of celebration, but also a season of lamenting and uncertainty. While Ecclesiastes paints us for a picture of an author who's lamenting in a dark season in their life for these first two chapters, what is different about chapter 3 is how different it is than the previous two chapters. Because in chapter 3, the author seems to be more in a reflective mood, recognizing that everything we experience, the good, the bad, the times of joy, the times of sorrow, times of beginnings, times of endings, are together just seasons we experience in our lives. It's almost as if the author wrote the first two chapters as a journal entry during the darkest time of their life, and now in chapter 3 is rereading it and recognizing how difficult it was in those first two chapters, but now realizing that it was part of life and that all of us experience change and uncertainty. While we do not know what may have caused this author of Ecclesiastes to echo a lot of pain in these first two chapters, What we can see in chapter 3, for all of us, is how Scripture speaks to us not only when we're going through transitional or difficult season in our lives, but more so how this Scripture reminds us that despite having seasons of weeping, seasons of mourning, it is seasons, seasons of healing, seasons of embracing, seasons of peace, and even laughter, which will always follow. 
Well, I will not tell you how the movie Up ended, in case you haven't seen it and want to see it. I will tell you this about our friend Carl. He ends up leaving his season of darkness, loneliness, anger, and despair. And through an exciting adventure on a hot air balloon, he finds friendship, companionship, purpose, and enters a new season in his life, a season that he did not expect to enter. Well, seeing all my classmates as they stood in line yesterday, as they proceeded to go through the processional, I, like many of them, could not stop and wonder and wonder why the season we're in has suddenly come to an end and how quickly it has. But while we were walking out onto the stage and getting our diplomas, we also had a season of hope, hope that says not only are we entering a new time in our lives, but there is still hope that we'll still be able to connect through one another, through phone calls, Skype messages, and Facebook posts, and hope that God will guide us and support us through new seasons of change, while faith will be with us to remind us that spring is just around the corner. You know, hope is what our Christian faith is all about. Our faith is not only about having hope that God comforts us and is with us through these difficult seasons in our lives, but I think hope reminds us that God has a season of spring just around the corner for all of us, a season of planting, building, mending, and embracing. Reformed theologian Dan Mulorier writes, Hope is the steadfast love of God that raises the dead and brings a transformed heaven and earth filled with righteousness, freedom, and peace. The hope for the coming of God's glory for the final healings of all nations, for the realization of God's reign over justice and peace throughout all creation and for the end of all crying and death. Hope, he says, is a fulfillment of life beyond that we deserve and imagine. My friends, our lives are much like the changing of seasons. There will be times we find ourselves experiencing blossom and beauty and new beginnings. But there will also be times of seasons where we experience darkness, reflection, and lament. Yet despite the more difficult seasons, what we do see in these difficult seasons is that God is still present for us, even in the seasons of fall and winter, and reminds us that these seasons do not have the last word. After all, the scripture ends with the word peace. It does not end with the words death. For those who find themselves mourning the lost, lost lives of loved ones, it's a message that reminds them that there will be a season of healing. For those who are grieving the end of a relationship, it's a message of hope which reminds them of a new season of change in their lives where they will be able to move on. For those who are experiencing changes in jobs, it's the message of hope which reminds them that they will be able to plant new seeds of opportunity in their lives. Above all, it's a message of hope, a message that reminds us that despite our brokenness, despite our pain, despite the hurts and the doubts and securities, it's through Jesus Christ, a God of unconditional love, a God of unconditional acceptance, that reminds us that no matter how long the road may be, how dark or how cold that winter night may seem. There will be a time, there will be a season of spring right around the corner. May it be so for you and also for me. Amen.